I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show well why don't we uh, go into talking about your body of work especially loner mm-hmm. and uh actually i'm sorry it's really hot let's take a little break for a second are we pause so many so many so many damn books yeah hello hi there hey everybody and welcome to so many damn books i'm christopher i'm drew and we have teddy wayne joining us in the damn library uh today hello teddy hello uh let me tell the good people a little bit about you for the sad folks who don't know you already um he's the author of the novels loner which you are here today to discuss as well as uh one of my dear favorites the love song of johnny valentine and uh your first novel was capitoil and you live in New York and teach at Columbia sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Not currently. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks coming for coming on. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell everybody about the drink. Indeed, you should. This yeah. is a good one. I know you're, you're very excited. I, well, I'm usually excited about the drink. Right, all of your novels are in first person, mm-hmm. as you know. I'm telling you this. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I was thinking, maybe I could do something with mixing the ideas here. So there's the bubbliness, the bubble pop of a sparkling wine, and that's very Johnny Valentiney mm-hmm. a little bit. Although he's 11, so he shouldn't be drinking. Well, um, sparkling grape juice. <laughs> and then there's the sort of oily um vermouth which is a little thicker and sweet and that's a i mean oil isn't sweet but capitoil deals with oil futures Mm -hmm. so i was thinking about that with vermouth and then then there's a little bit of bitter um a little bit of bittersweet and that's uh and that's i think what's going on there's a lot of bitterness in (laughs) um in loner so you put these three things together and you get it's actually what i'm calling first person nice but you can go on the website, so many damn books slash the damn bar to get the actual, you know, ratios of things, and you can go and make that right now. Yeah. Well, well, why don't we uh, why don't we go into what'd you buy? Yeah. Are we ready for that? Sure. Um, Do you want to start? I picked up one thing and was given one thing. Uh, for my birthday a couple weeks ago uh danny gave me a book called how to tell toledo from the night sky oh, uh, by lydia netzer yeah just a it's a great title it's one of the, you look at it and you're like i don't think i could say this out loud without messing it up right um what's that one about 
it's about like these two people who have like essentially been uh, groomed to fall in love with each other over the course of their whole lives, but they don't like each other. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of like astronomy and stuff. And I don't know. It just sounds like a cute, adorable, silly. She often uh, deals with stars. Her last book was something about an astronaut. Oh yeah. Lydia Netzer. Yeah. She's cool. Yeah. Good one. Uh, the other one is a new novel that's I think just come out or is just about to come out uh, from FSG Originals. Mike Roberts's Cannibals in Love. Oh yeah, that's got that cool the knuckle hands. cover. Yeah. yeah. Um, it sounds like a, a kind of typical, um, quote unquote, post nine eleven early millennial generation coming into its own mm. kind of thing. But something about it uh, feels a little more propulsive than well, some sure. of the it's cannibals more, yeah the more navel gazy yeah things that you sometimes run into sounds good are there any actual cannibals in there is that a metaphor i am really hoping that there are because i feel like you can't set that up and yeah. then you get to the end of the book and you're like the cannibals were a metaphor yeah, they like, eat well, themselves emotionally yeah it's all they're in love but they have to eat each other i don't yeah. know yeah i'll report back okay would you like to talk about what you bought? Sure. Yeah, I got um, Saturday by Ian McEwen, which oh, nice. I never read before uh, and read it. And it's, it's great. Um, sort of a slowish beginning, but then it gets much more involved and immersive. And it's just a very well-constructed novel. Cool. Yeah, that's really good. I can't wait for his new book, which is apparently a riff on Hamlet. But from mm. the perspective, the Hamlet in the situation is like a eight months and three weeks old fetus who's like ready to be born but just not quite born so weird so weird but i'm like those i all of this sounds great yeah i'll tell you what i bought which i got um the selfishness of others uh, or the fear of narcissism Mm -hmm. by uh, Kristen dombeck and uh it's basically a book-length essay really looking at how there's been an uptick in the use of the word narcissism and she's sort of examining what what is driving this fear of this of this phenomenon and it's uh, i've started it and it's very propulsive it's very good cool um and then i also picked up this um this thing called the mickey mouse reader by uh edited by gary apgar and i picked it up because it it just gathers all of this writing about mickey mouse going all the way back to the first reviews of the Steamboat Willie cartoons Whoa. all the way up to now. And there's like Walter Benjamin is in here, John Updike, Marie Sendak, um, Anna Quinlan, all sorts of random fantastic people writing on the mouse. Cool. Yeah. I'm really excited to, I've already dipped into a couple little things. I really love it. Man, I would have hated to been the guy who wrote, was like, ah, I don't know, this animation thing, this mouse, I don't, you know, who wants to see a mouse? It, yeah, this isn't here to stay. Yeah. <laughs> They'll never make a theme park out of this. <laughs> so we're so excited to have you here. We, um, we, I discovered, I think you did as well. Yeah. Um, your novel Capitoil because of the uh, tournament of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and ever since, a new book gets announced from you and we're very excited. Um, of course, it's 
as we were saying with the drink, all of the all of the books are in um, first person, and I'm sort of curious if if it's sort of like a performance, if it's like acting onto a page, or is there another process by which you put together these voices? Uh, yeah, there's probably some kind of actorly performance or presentation. Um, in each case, the voice just came to me initially with some tweaks and modifications eventually. And I just went with it. Um, so uh, there's probably something about uh, kind of methody to that, about sinking into the character through this language, through this idiosyncratic point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, at some point it's also, there's a remove still. Uh, whereas with an actor, you are performing, you're doing it. I think writers have to always keep a foot out of the door and keep in mind what's going on sort of holistically and external to the character, even though it's through their point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. The, um, the thing that sort of strikes me is that not only are all three of your novels so far in this sort of very, um, each of them is very idiosyncratic first person. They all kind of, they're ripped from the headlines. I, I, would, I would say maybe more zeitgeisty than ripped from the headlines. I don't necessarily take like a story and say, I'm going to write about this for Capitol. I'd want to write about uh, the financial world and oil futures. And oil was a, a huge part of the 2000s when I started writing in 2005. Um, Johnny Valentine, I was uh, seeing something about uh, Justin, you know, no, Miley Cyrus uh, picture book that a, a girl I was tutoring the previous <laughs> week. And I eventually got the idea to write something that sort of parodied this and then decided to make it more serious. And at this point, Justin Bieber was blowing up too. Um, for this one, it sort of became the, the world around me, sort of mimicking the book itself a little bit more. Uh, I wanted to write something set at Harvard, a, a campus novel. Wanted to deal with um, gender politics. And then after I'd written a draft, uh, Elliot Roger went on his rampage in mm-hmm. Isla Vista. And that did end up influencing the book somewhat. Uh, huh. His manifesto and the things, elements of his personality or at least of his character um, showed up in the book as well. So, you know, not ripped from the headlines necessarily so much as the world around me informed, informed the book. Cool. Wow. I mean, these, this, this novel, I mean, it's, it's slim and it feels, it, it, you feel like you're barreling towards something horrible the whole time mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe you want to sort of give a little bit about what loner's about i'm worried that i yeah. might ruin the ending <laughs> <laughs> uh it's a from the perspective of david faderman who's a socially awkward somewhat shy withdrawn uh kid from new, suburban new jersey who goes to harvard begins on his first day there and immediately he becomes infatuated with a beautiful charismatic enigmatic and wealthy Manhattanite in his dorm named Veronica. Uh, And the rest of the book follows him as he contrives to get closer to her, uh, as he manipulates others to become closer to her as well, in the hopes of securing a relationship of some kind with her. Um, And early on, we're told we know something has gone badly by the end. We don't know what it is, but there are a few hints in the first 15 to 30 pages that things do not end well for, for them. Yeah, <laughs> things do not end. <laughs> <laughs> I guess w- 
I, while I was reading it, I was, I don't know. I, there was all this dread and, and worry about what might happen. And I started wondering, and maybe you can answer this. Um, what is the, what is the entertainment value of discomfort? Like why, why? Cause I've, I've sought this out in the past and um, to, to a far more extreme extent, uh, like Alyssa Nutting's Tampa, mm-hmm. um, also first person makes you complicit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that left a lot of discomfort. This one is not quite that extreme, but it definitely has those elements. Right. So there's the complicity aspect of a first person narration. Lolita does that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think probably one area, one one answer to that is we don't like to be discomf- discomfited in real life. It's not fun to be uncomfortable in any physical real life situation. We seek to avoid that. The, vicar- the vicarious discomfort through art can be exciting, whether it's the social awkwardness of the British office, that sort <laughs> of thing, which you would not want to be in that real room, but on TV, it's fine. Uh, or transgressive violent dark things that we see all the time in movies and tv shows and occasionally books um you could probably extend this to anything that plenty of uncomfortable or negative emotional states are are enjoyable when it when perceived through art and not through the real world but discomfort is probably a great one because it's so clearly something you want to avoid normally and in in a book you know you're the one actually turning the pages so you're the one causing that discomfort in a strange way or sort of leading it on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there might be something interesting about that too, that as long as you keep reading it, you're getting closer and closer to the resolution and you're the one who's forcing it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're sort of the one that is going to have the power to make the discomfort end either by closing the book completely. Yeah. Or just continuing to read. And not to get too meta about it, but I think that if there's some implication of the reader here, it's why do you want to see the, what David ends up doing or what, what's, what is it in you that is curious to see him achieve his goals or not achieve them? Uh, and not to say you're as bad as he is, but there's something uh, transgressive about, about the reader's own desire. If I've written the book well enough to make you actually want to see that happen. Right. This, um, it reminded me quite a bit in the way that as I was reading it, I was like, Oh, I see myself. It not, the full extent of David, but I like, I see myself in David to an uncomfortable mm. level, especially in the beginning in a way. The only other time I've really ever felt it was, um, Adele Waldman's the love affairs of Nathaniel mm. P, which is kind of a, a different horrible relationship yeah. textbook. As I was reading it, I was like, man, I see myself in this and I'm wondering both if you've seen yourself or if you uh, sort of understand like in that, that universal way, Mm -hmm. but also if you see this behavior, both at Columbia, but just out in the world. I think you hit upon something, which is that there are plenty of universal things David's going through that anyone could identify with. We all know what it's like to be uncomfortable the first day of school Mm -hmm. in a new environment. What it's like to, I don't know about you guys, when, when they do like the say your name and go in a circle, say Uh. your name. I hate it. Who wants to like wait for your turn to, and then guess say your name and something (laughs) stupid attached to it. Uh, it's agonizing. So I think yeah. David going through these things is, is pretty normal. And certainly at the beginning, I made sure to front load the normalcy so he's not so off-putting so that you get <laughs> slowly sucked into this partial identification with him. Um, but then, you know, of course, he goes more off the rails. 
And the key for me as the writer was making that gradual and, and incremental rather than all at once. Um, do I, have I seen young men do this? Absolutely not. I, I don't know any real Davids out there because uh, I wouldn't probably be teaching them anymore. They'd be yeah. somewhere else. They don't last in society all that long. Um, but do I see young men who are sort of seemingly meek and mild, but maybe harboring some darker thoughts underneath it? I mean, I have no way of knowing what their thoughts are, but I, I think I've probably encountered that for sure. In Johnny Valentine, he the, the character is 11, and then um, David is 18. Mm-hmm. Uh you you, uh, you keep going back to these youthful voices. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's drawing you towards towards these youthful stories? Uh, well, yeah, Kareem was was twenty six in the first one, so but yeah, it's sort of a more youthful perspective. Definitely. Uh, the thing I'm writing now it, it starts when the characters are twenty four and will go to when they're like forty or forty one. So it's mm. it's more of a range. Um, could just be sort of interest still in excavating adolescence and post-adolescence or pre-adolescence in the case of Johnny. And uh, I think I've probably gotten it out of my system at this point, but um, maybe that, you know, none of, I didn't write the sort of classic first coming, first debut novel, coming of age novel. That's clearly about your own experience. And I never would because my own experiences are not, I think worthy of a novel. (laughs) Um, so maybe because I didn't do that and write my story, uh, I've written some version, oblique version of my story, three different ways hmm. from different angles, but none of them are actually my own real story. That's cool. Yeah. A question that sort of relates to all three of the books, especially I think Johnny Valentine and Loner have this like very sharp, dark, dry, almost satire to them mm. that they could be misconstrued in that, like in the way that like the Wolf of Wall Street, a bunch of finance bros mm. saw that and were like, yeah, our lives are awesome. And it's oh. like, oh no, you missed, you missed the thing. Uh, well, I don't think I've hit it. I don't have, I don't have the audience of Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> where enough people are, you know, literary fiction readers are a smart group. They tend to get it. Um, uh, someone actually told him that his son reading Johnny Valentine, who was 16 years old, who viewed the end of it as extremely hopeful. Or, uh, there's some, he, the father and the son had very different takes on the ending. Hmm. And I did feel like the father had the more accurate take. Uh, I'd be curious to hear how other teenagers have responded to it. Yeah. But I, you know, that's, that's out of my hands anyway. Right. Like I'm, I'm not, and also no one having the quote unquote incorrect response is going to, destroy the world because of it i i I mean i hope not loner is it's maybe a little bit more scary in that regard but i can't imagine anyone mimicking david and trying to emulate him yeah um i hope not that doesn't seem feasible the the issues in in this book are right on the surface right now with a lot of a lot of the things that are going on and people are becoming pariahs and 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 taken down for what they say and Mm -hmm. and are are you worried about the (laughs) the response to this in any way uh i think i was initially before we start seeing responses from people and the responses have no i think everyone has recognized david's his own creation it's, it's not the author yeah and i think we're also at a point where we don't conflate author with with narrator or the character that much anymore 
Um, but again, it's literary fiction. These uh, readers are, are astute. Um, I think they know better. And I, I think it'd be hard to read this book and honestly argue that I am on David's side or, or right. believe what David believes. I don't, I think there's so much in the book that clearly that makes it clear that I don't, mm-hmm. uh, it would take a very intellectually dishonest argument to, to put that forth. <laughs> That's a good point. Speaking of conflating sort of narrator and author, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking a little bit of the book that you brought to us, actually Rebecca Schiff's mm-hmm. the bed moved a collection of stories in which several of them that sort of had a similar recurring voice. I started asking myself like, huh, am I, am I assuming things about Rebecca Schiff mm-hmm. based on what I'm reading? Right. I'm wondering if either of you had a similar. I wasn't worried. I wasn't thinking about, I, I was, I was more caught up in the tension that she's enjoying i think of naming some characters rebecca or you know um i think she's enjoying the fact that there's she's playing with the line of autobiography it seemed like to me i know her personally so i I, (laughs) but i'll let her answer maybe you guys will have her on the show i'll let her i'll let her answer for herself whether it's her or not um but i tried reading it as a she's clearly not trying to write about someone who's so opposite herself. So when you write about someone who's so close to you, you're inviting those comparisons, but it seems like a fictional creation nonetheless, even if it's rooted in autobiography, uh, there's an act of imagination there that I'm sure is making it a different autobiography. Why don't you tell us why you decided to pick the bed moved by Rebecca Schiff. Why, why do you bring that to us today? Uh, it's a it's a truly great book. It's just extremely sharp and funny and insightful and sensitive and off kilter. Um, and you know, a lot of literary fiction disappoints me in its literariness. That mm-hmm. is sort of the pseudo lyricism of of contemporary literature. And her writing is just so clean and yet and poetic in a spare way, but it's also funny and it redeems itself through humor. Um, plus it's moving. I mean, it's, it, there's like real, it's about, I'll explain quickly, uh, short stories, most of which are first person, most of which seem to be a similar character, if not the same character. Uh, and the subjects as she sort of mocks at the end are casual sex and parental death, Yeah, which are, sort of two connected yet opposed subjects. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and both are just handled so well and expertly uh, and without sentimentality uh, and are sort of raw and honest. And I feel like that's a, a rarity to find these days. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I had seen that the cover is very striking because there are just a couple of extra letters. Mm-hmm. And so every time I would see it, I'd be like, what is it? Yeah. Uh, and picking it up to discover that many of the stories operate basically at a level of like flash fiction. They are short, mm-hmm. but they like the they do sort of hit in a way that I don't usually associate with flash fiction. Where flash fiction, a lot of times I'll read it and just sort of be like, "Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. cool." But these the short stories and the handful of longer ones really like they do have sort of a a very poignant potent voice 
yeah that you put it well too like a lot of, oftentimes with with short short fiction it feels sort of experimental for its own sake it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like there's anything really at stake there or nothing resembling real human life and in these stories i i at least for me they felt like uh someone who'd been through these experiences or at least knows very closely and carefully uh what these experiences feel like and rendered them uh with real precision too yeah you know you you were saying that you sort of um have shied away from your own autobiography mm-hmm. um but she sort of seems to be at least playing with the idea of it what do you think she she gains from from being closer to to the uh, words that she's writing i i do think there's something to be said for if if say you're taking a, a real experience you had which i've certainly done too and and camouflaged it or taken my ex- experience i've had and put it in the experience of kareem or johnny or even david and when it's through them it feels like it's not mine because it's a clearly the character is not me um there's an authenticity and an honesty to that lived experience that can be harder to achieve when you're truly imagining it and i think if you're sort of dispensing with the subterfuge and, and just and just plainly depicting a thing that happened to you and you're not worrying about have i masked this well enough or have i filtered this through the character enough um, it can be sort of closer to the bone. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the case for her, for her book. Reading the two books and thinking about each other as you're reading these two books, the thing that struck me most is that like the bed moved is a very, God, I hate myself for saying, it's a very progressive view of sex and mm-hmm. just that idea that like, yeah, it is about casual sex and like the weird, awkward, sometimes great, mostly terrible things. But like, it's, it's just sex. Whereas in Loner, it like, sex is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just i I found it very refreshing to read The Bed Moved shortly after reading Loner because I was like, oh yes, right. <laughs> this is the okay. way it is. Yeah, heavy. Yeah, it's the difference between uh, a 20 or 30-something female protagonist who has plenty of casual sex, and the biggest problem is not that the sex is bad, but that the relationships around them are not necessarily good, versus David, an 18-year-old virgin who is dead set on on having sex, Um, and not just with his girlfriend he eventually acquires, but with this out-of-reach girl that she's roommates with. It's a much yeah darker more perverse <laughs> view of sexuality yeah uh, there was there were many things of um in in loner sorry i'm back on loner um of like learning someone's morning routines mm-hmm. yeah that was so <laughs> familiar from college um was that enjoyable to return to at all like the your college experience it was although i had to make sure i didn't when you bring that up for instance i had to make sure i went to college from 97 to 2001 um so i remember in an earlier draft of this the morning routine bit i initially had that she has an alarm clock and then it occurred to me no one has an alarm clock anymore (laughs) and i had to make sure i didn't have these like things that were such gen x relics oh that's so funny Um, were there any other ones there had to be a few. I mean, I, she they use Microsoft Word, and I've been told that a lot of people just use Google Docs now. I have to imagine 
if you're a serious student in college, you still use Microsoft Word, right? Oh my God, that? I can't imagine writing an essay in Google Docs. This is, I, I heard someone, I maybe, maybe it's high Google schoolers, Docs. but I've, I've heard really? some people yeah. don't do it. Um, that sort of thing. I mean, then phones and the, then things I was very conscious of, smartphones and Facebook and other social media, mostly Facebook, play a role in the plot of this and in the background people are always looking at phones and texting mm-hmm. um, and that's something that wouldn't have happened in my era either those difficult because i know that plots can be ruined by the fact that someone could have a cell phone and they could have just called that sort of thing yeah i wrote an essay a few months ago about technological changes now and, and how it makes it harder to sort of be up to date with what you're writing because by the time you write something if it comes out a year later the app you're referring to or whatever <laughs> website might well be extinct. Right. Um, that let alone wrote about Ello. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> well, the, the example I used in the essay was what if you'd written a novel in 2004 and you made a big deal about Friendster, how silly would that look? And yes, it's a sort of time capsule. So maybe it's meant to be 2004, but you could look very obsolete very quickly. Um, but you're right that technological advances have made certain classic plot machinations harder <laughs> to achieve yeah uh the classic one idea example being romeo and juliet would not have would have just texted each other <laughs> as opposed to like sending some message that never gets there um but rather than sort of run away from that i decided to embrace it and use as i said facebook especially it plays a key role in the plot at, at one point and it felt like an opportunity to do something with a story rather than just uh, ignore it when technology is used in a way that um, illuminates instead of sort of feels like, yes, look at, I'm referencing this current thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about a story in the bed moved actually, which has a HTTP colon backslash backslash www.msjiz slash. And it's just like it turned MPEG and it turns into this, like, that's not a real, that's not a real thing. That's not what a file looks like. Yeah. And I, it's that thing where, if you're reading that story today and you see it comes up in the uh, in the text of the story that she like clicks on this file with that address, and you're like, that's that's not what a file looks like. But it it doesn't matter mm-hmm. because you're tied to sort of like the emotional truth of the story of like finding weird niche porn on your dead father's computer. Like, <laughs> I can't necessarily relate, but I feel like it's the sort of thing that you can sort of. Mm-hmm everybody understands the thing without knowing like the particulars of like, Oh yes, it was a dot M O V. Yeah. I think that that's sort of like the key of, of using technology. I want people not to shy away from it anymore because I do feel like it limits your ability to really reflect the world that we're living in, which Mm -hmm. is one of the beauties of reading contemporary fiction to me is that it's representing or at least was written in the world that I'm currently also living in. I did I did avoid having any other social media, both because I didn't want to deal with it, um, and it would have felt like overkill. Like the, You don't need another website to do this. Yeah. Um, so I just had that you can't find Veronica on any other social media sites. Yeah, that makes sense. There's got to be some way to get through the books that I'm buying, yeah. and it's certainly not the way that I'm reading them now. <laughs> Speaking what? of everybody's uh, to read lists, yeah, we should talk about should recommendations. We add some yeah, yeah, should we? Yeah. Should we go into recommendations? Do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, 
just before I read Saturday by McHugh and I read belatedly uh, Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Ooh. Strout, which is stupendous. Like one of the one of the better books I've read in my life. Um, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. It doesn't need advertisement from me, but uh, it's set in a main town, uh, set around the character Olive Kittredge, who's this flinty, somewhat cold, uh, stoic uh, woman. Um, and it's short stories. So the, about 70% of them, I'd say, are about her. And the rest are either about her husband or occasional other characters in town. Oh, that's cool. I didn't a, realize it was stories. Yeah. And then, you know, a linked collection, essentially. But yeah. it really jumps around in time quite a bit. Um, some of the ancillary characters are a little bit less successful, I think, for stories than, than the ones about her and her husband. But uh, I'd recommend that, plus the HBO miniseries, which I saw first before reading the book, and Frances McDormand's in it. And the, oh, it's one of the best geez. miniseries I've ever seen. Uh, and I couldn't, of course. Once I saw it, I had the image of Frances McDormand in my mind the whole time reading it, which I think actually improved it because she's so good in it. Yeah, she's great. I, w- I always like Frances McDormand. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to also recommend something that doesn't need another, uh, Lori Moore's who will run the frog hospital. Uh, I finally, I finally read my first Lori Moore book Mm -hmm. and, uh, she is as transcendent as everyone says she is. That book is incredible. It's a really slim little book. If you're looking for something that captures the melancholy of the end of summer, um, this novel is, is great for that. Um, and I also read something really fun. Um, this book, Nimona by Noelle Stevenson. It's a, a, it's a collection of a webcomic. It's a full story. Um, it's about a, a girl that shows up at the local supervillains hideout one day and says, I'm going to be your sidekick. I want to help you do evil stuff. And he, uh, he rejects her at first, but then it turns out she's a shapeshifter and she can turn into any size, any animal, anything. And so he's like, all right, you're kind of useful. <laughs> you can stay. And it's really funny and actually has some really interesting things to say about heroism and and um, why people become heroes and why people become villains. It actually had a lot to, it actually exploits some very interesting things for being a silly webcomic as well. It's written by um, uh, Noel Stevenson, who is one of the writers for Lumberjanes, which I guess is really, really great. You were, oh, yeah. You really like that. So those are my recommendations. Um, Drusif? The first one is something that I actually, I could not stop thinking about while I was reading Loner uh, for several reasons. It's a play by Neil Butte called The Shape of Things um, that I was in my freshman year of college. Mm. And it, it has a similarly interesting, uh, messed up take on the the terrible things that um, men and women can do to each other in the name of love, which that actually just describes every Neil Butte play. <laughs> but they made uh, a movie of that one, right? Yeah, with uh, the original New York cast, including Paul Rudd and Rachel Weisz. America's Sweetheart, Paul Rudd. Yeah, and a very confusing Elvis Costello soundtrack. It's just Elvis Costello songs, but it doesn't really make any sense. Um, but it's directed by Neil Butte. Yeah, he directed it. But <laughs> the 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 twist at the end of that play is a a lovely twin slash sibling twist to what happens in loner. Hmm. Another drew, uh, drew grant, who's a writer at the New York observer when she read loner 
immediately told me to, to check out shape of the shape of things yeah i've not t- done yet but i will i plan to, re- to watch it soon um it's great it's my far and away my favorite neil debut play and not just because i was in it mm. um and then the other thing is just uh if you need something huge to counterbalance the very short speedy read of loner uh michael cisco's animal money which is that was recommended by vandermeer wasn't it uh yeah it was jeff vandermeer's favorite fiction book of 2015 i think Mm -hmm. it is like nearly 800 pages it's these five economists at a conference in latin america they all end up with like injuries at the beginning of the conference and so they're all sitting around together and somehow they sort of mutually come up with this idea of animal money like money that is actually alive and that the transaction of it multiplies it uh and which sounds pretty weird and then it just gets substantially weirder very quick like society crumbles there's uh uh, other planets and like an alien invasion and a poet slash activist this all hangs together and the author talk not even really but at the same time you're reading it and you're like somehow i'm not even ma- i don't even think he knows what's happening but like the sort of just rapidly expanding thing it's like a science experiment that you see and the guy's like come on give it more power and you're like ah, i think this is gonna blow up and like everyone else is backing away but the guy is still there that's what i felt like as i was reading this i was like the author was convinced that if he just gave it more it would something would come together and i don't even know that it does but like i it was three weeks ago that i finished reading it and i can't stop thinking about it wow so if you need a big confusing read yeah you could do worse wow Well, thank you so much for joining us in the damn library, Teddy Wayne. We really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you for having me. This is great. Um, everyone go out and buy Loner. It's out now. It's out right now. Um, Literally right now. Stop and, what you're doing. And and you should probably pick up the whole Teddy Wayne library. And uh, and also, you know, So Many Damn Books has reached 50 episodes. Drew, yeah. Oh, which, man. So because we reached 50 episodes and it's like kind of almost our birthday yeah i don't know when our birthday actually is october 4th oh um for for our 50th episode if you guys could all rate us on itunes that'd be really cool it'd be a nice a nice present yeah so an anniversary i think that is the 50th anniversary that's the 50th. gift yeah it's a, it's a, it's a, a rating on it's a diamond five star rating <laughs> yeah. uh that'd be great and uh t- read a lot of books and we'll talk to you soon yeah happy school year happy school year nerds because your chemistry professors will be very upset if you mess it up yes i don't really understand that joke I, you know you gotta try you gotta try all <laughs> so the jokes just, so you just didn't it was just a no and then you sit there and you with the sort of like the i think i get that they don't really care if you mess it up as if they're so concerned you'll get the right proportions yeah right? Yeah. yeah all right he's being nicer than that yeah that's very true <laughs>